Great to have you guys with us this morning as we worship the Lord, as we spend some time in His Word. I'm going to have you guys watch a video in just a moment, but before we do that, I wanted to share some scripture with you today. Uh, specifically, it'll be a passage that's very, very familiar to probably most of you, at least the first portion of it, and it comes from John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. It's probably the verse that most of us learned first when we were children, other than Jesus wept, but nobody knows exactly where that is in the Bible, Uh, just because that was easier, because you only had to remember two words. But John chapter 3 is perhaps the most familiar verse, even among those who do not consider themselves Christian. They've at least heard, they used to put the sign up in the football games at the end of the end zone where people would see it. Uh, But let's look today in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, and then we'll watch a brief video. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. If you would take a moment, this is about a six minute video, but it is worth watching. Not a single spoken word, that's because that's a a clip from a French film called The Most. Um, It's a story of a man who used to take his child with him, and he was the bridge operator. And as you can see, uh, something went wrong, and he found himself in a position where he had to decide whether to allow each individual on the train to die or to allow his son to die. And he chose to allow his son to die so that others might live. The lady at the end, there was the same lady who was experiencing addiction on the train. And there she was transformed by what had taken place. The reality, though, is most go by completely unaware that there has been any such sacrifice. Now, that's the movie. You know that there's an application for us as well. John chapter 3, verse 16 declares to us that God so loved the world so much that he would give his one and only son so that we might experience eternal life. So that we, those individuals who were on that train, might experience the forgiveness and the grace that only he could make possible to us. On July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This sermon specifically focused on humanity's fallen condition, our tendency to sin, as well as our eternal destination, which awaits all humanity without Christ. It was a message that clearly declared that God's wrath would come upon humanity, sending sinful man to hell. This would become the primary focus for much of the period that is known as the Great Awakening, And certainly it was a theme that 
had sticking power. In fact, it became a time of great revival as thousands and thousands of people were being called into a right relationship with God. And the reason is because we are very much aware of the fact that there was a punishment that awaited any who were not ready. Perhaps one of the greatest and most familiar speakers for the church was a man named D.L. Moody. He had the, word, the words, God is love, engraved on his pulpit. But you need to understand why he did that. He was one of the ministers who came out of that time period of the Great Awakening. Early in his ministry, he preached often with a message of condemnation. It was intended to be a call, call to holiness. He was trying to get people to realize that if they did not change, there would be wrath and punishment. He would share later on that he had an image of God in his mind every time he preached. And he pictured God as standing behind humanity with a sword ready to levy his wrath upon humanity. And he was simply trying to avoid that. Until one day he had gone on a journey to Europe. And while there he met a man named Thomas Moorhead. Thomas Moorhead, Moorhead was very young. He was very new to ministry. In fact, he was often referred to as the boy preacher because of the fact that he was so young. But as D.L. Moody met with him, they reached a point where D.L. Moody actually invited him to come to the United States. D.L. Moody had ministered in Chicago, Illinois for a very large church, had a huge following. D.L. Moody had him come and speak at his church. He spoke for seven nights. And all seven nights he spoke from John chapter 3, verse 16. As he spoke with them each night, he focused on the love that Jesus Christ offered. His focus was completely different from what D.L. Moody had preached about. Now, catch that. D.L. Moody was a man who had preached for years and had a great following. There were huge crowds that would come to hear him preach. But through the ministry of Thomas Moorhead, everything would change. As he preached, he portrayed God as a loving being who, according to D.L. Moody, would stand behind mankind, not with a sword, but waiting for the opportunity to redeem those whom he loved. In his final address to the church, Moorhead stated, that he had tried for the past week to accurately portray the love of God for humanity. But it was not possible. There was nothing he could do to more clearly state God's love than to quote directly from the word of God. So then he began his sermon, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Clearly, there is no greater love than this. Upon completion of Morad's sermon series, Moody's heart had been changed. He said he would still preach the message of God's holiness. He would still preach of the coming judgment, but he would also point out God's love for all of humanity and knowing that this was the only source of rescue for anybody. This may not seem like a big deal, but it's huge. 
In this shift, remember the image of God as standing behind humanity with a sword ready to exact judgment. God takes on a completely different form and he is still standing behind humanity. But his focus is not wrath. His focus is love and grace. So God is love. That's why he had it on his pulpit. But do you really know God's love? Consider how great that love is. According to today's passage, we see two bold aspects of God's love, followed by two aspects of our love, and I want to point these out to you this morning. First, consider the negative. According to verse 17, we are told that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. I can't help but wonder why John began, as he records this, why he begins with the negative. Why not just jump to the reason why he did come? Why start by telling us the negative? It's because God and John, as he was directed to record this, knew the mindset of humanity. Like D.L. Moody, we expect judgment and condemnation. It's what we're taught even as little children. Often the first step in learning obedience is understanding that there are consequences if we don't do it the right way. We're going to get a whooping if we don't do it the right way. Mom and dad are going to be disappointed. We'll get lectured. There are all these different consequences, but we are very much consequence driven. Well, it would be easy for us to incorrectly assume that this was the reason for Christ's coming. Some actually believe that as Christ came, that he was coming to bring condemnation. And there were certainly times that as Jesus spoke, he called people out on their sin. I consider the way he dealt with Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders who knew what they were supposed to be doing, or at least they should have known. There were certainly times that Jesus did bring a message of condemnation. But the real purpose for Christ to come was not condemnation. You know, in many ways, what Jesus does is he takes the more difficult road. He sees the brokenness of humanity, and instead of simply executing judgment upon us, he offers us a chance that we might be made right. It's like a company that gets bought out. The new management comes in and immediately recognizes problems with the existing staff. Management has two choices. They can get rid of all of those who are there, or they can help train them in a new way so that they can be changed and the business can be successful. The easier route, by the way, would likely be to just get rid of everyone who's there and start over with new people. But that's not always the best route. Another example of this would be the husband or the wife who is fed up with their spouse. The thought is that if I just get a new one, then I won't have to deal with all the problems I have with this one. Of course, that's not necessarily true, as you're likely just trading one set of problems in for another. Not to say that your wife is a problem. Don't take that wrong. I have some friends from Colorado who were uh, nearing divorce after nearly 15 years of marriage. They had already filed the paperwork, and both were doing everything they could to make life miserable on the other one. One day, as the divorce process was nearing its conclusion, the husband had gone to a nearby park, and he struck up a conversation with an elderly lady. They ended up talking about the divorce situation that was occurring. 
The elderly lady asked him a question. She said, it's taken you 15 years to learn to live together. What makes you think starting over from scratch will be any better? In other words, he thought this would be the easier way, but there's really no guarantee that anything's going to be easier. Some would suggest that this is exactly what God did in the days of Noah. God looked upon the earth and saw that the hearts of men were evil. In fact, everything that they did was evil. He found one righteous man through which he would offer redemption to all of mankind, but the rest were destroyed by the flood. It was almost as if God were simply hitting the reset button. Well, when Jesus comes, it is made clear that his purpose was not to condemn the world. He didn't want the world to fail. He didn't want to give up on humanity. He didn't want punishment and wrath. As D.L. Moody had originally portrayed, certainly there are times that such actions are necessary. In fact, God has clearly stated that there is coming a day when justice and judgment will take place. On that day, according to the Gospel of Matthew, he will separate the sinners from the saints. And although many people will be grouped as believers and receive the gift of eternal life, there will also be many, many more who will receive God's wrath. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says it this way. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So we know that God's judgment is coming, but as Jesus came, that's not why he came. He didn't come to judge. He didn't come to punish. Instead, the real reason why he came was to save. The negative was he didn't come to judge, to punish, to exact wrath. The positive reveals the real reason he came to save the world through him. As a teenager, one of my friends had a swimming pool in his backyard. And during the summer, after each of our football practices or weightlifting, we would go over to Jerry's house and we would swim. There were usually six or eight of us that would go, depending on what everybody else had going on. And most of us could swim, so we loved it. We would have a great time. We had one individual who could not swim. His name was Mike Pathetos. A Greek guy just based on the name. Awesome guy. Loved him. He also was the biggest guy in the group. So all of us, we would go and we would swim and have a great time. Mike would stay in the shallow end. And he would have fun too, but it just wasn't the same. Well, one of the guys named Rich decided, I'm going to teach Mike how to swim. So Rich begins trying to teach Mike. Now, they work simple with the doggy paddle, just kind of getting him to where he can move his hands and his feet a little bit. Now, I told you Mike was the biggest guy in the group. We should have realized there was a problem because Rich was the smallest guy in the group. And what happened was Mike got to the point where he felt secure, and it probably wasn't 15 minutes into teaching him how to do the doggy paddle. He felt like he could try to swim across the deep end. And Rich gets in with him, and Mike begins to doggy paddle across the pool. And as he's halfway across the pool, his body began to go vertical, which simply means that he's still moving his hands and his feet, but he's not going anywhere. That's called treading water. That is not swimming. It's not doggy paddling. And he begins to panic. 
I told you Rich was the smallest guy. Rich decides, it's okay, I got you. So he reaches out for him. And of course, Mike is in a panic and he reaches out for him and he just goes straight down. And of course, everybody else is beginning to get worried. I jumped in very, very quickly, but I knew better than to get close to him where he could grab me. I swam to the bottom of the pool, grabbed his feet and pushed him over to the side. And then we came out. Now, I will tell you, Mike went home that day and he told everybody for the next probably three weeks, Mike saved me. I was drowning. Now, I got to tell you, I don't know if he was going to drown or not. I'm going to tell you this. When God saves us, it is similar to that except for one primary difference. My life was never in jeopardy. As I swam and I grabbed his feet, I knew that there was no way he was going to be able to get a hold of me. I knew I was getting out. What Jesus Christ did in saving us was he jumped in, but for the, from the very beginning, he had the expectation that he would not come out alive. Jesus Christ saved a drowning world, but he did so with the intention he knew that he would have to give his life to make that happen. Let me suggest to you today that that is the heartbeat of God, is to save mankind. John chapter 15, verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. The story is told of four World War II chaplains who studied and served together. They put into practice one February morning in 1943 exactly what they had been preaching. They gave their lives so that others might live. That day there were 902 soldiers aboard a ship from New York heading to war in Europe via Greenland. As they neared Greenland, a torpedo struck the side of their ship, killing everyone in the blast area, plunging that vessel into total darkness. Terrified and confused, the surviving soldiers scurried in search of exits and rescue boats. Chaplains Alexander Good, John Washington, Clark Poling, and George Fox could have headed for the lifeboats. Instead, they went to different parts of the ship, assisting panicked and wounded soldiers to the top deck and to rescue boats, handing out life jackets to those who had left theirs behind and even giving their own life jackets away when all of the other life jackets were gone. Less than a half hour after the torpedo attack, the ship slipped below the icy waters, and the four chaplains were last seen standing arm in arm against the slanted deck railing, leaning on each other. Above the chaos of the evacuating lifeboats, the soldiers could hear the chaplains singing, praying, and quoting scripture. They laid down their lives for another. It is very rare that you would see individuals offer a bold kind of love like that. But that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. The scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death, which means that every one of us deserves to die. But what Jesus Christ did is he said, I will pay your price so that you will not have to. That is the bold kind of love that Jesus alone 
offers to us. This leads us back to our passage where there are two more things that I want to highlight. First of all, we know what God's love, the reason Jesus came was not to condemn. We know the reason he came was to save. Now let's talk about us. Understand that for each of us, we have the opportunity to respond to the God's love. There are two typical responses that we give, and they are both addressed in our passage this morning. First of all, understand that some, no matter how great the love is that God offers, some will choose darkness. They will love the darkness. Now, obviously, the first thought of this is the sin. And there is some logic to this. When you think about it, nobody would sin unless the sin itself had some sort of pleasure. And it does make sense that as a world begins to fall in love with sin, it's hard to let it go. I think of uh, Lot and his family who had lived so close to Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they were there, the time came for them to leave because it was about to be destroyed. And instead of simply fleeing as they had been instructed to do, Lot's wife turns back because she had actually fallen in love with the people and the place. Lot's two daughters had two uh, young men that they were pledged to be married to, yet they would not come because they loved the place where they were. Sin is an attractive thing, and as a result of that, many will choose to never turn away from their sin. They love that darkness. But what I would suggest to you is that not all love the darkness just because of the pleasure that's associated with it. Sometimes it simply becomes familiar. It's what we recognize. It is our comfort because we've just become so accustomed to it. Some of us have carried shame and regret for things that we've done in the past or maybe even for things that other people have done to us in the past. And deep down inside, that becomes a part of our identity. We begin to sort of relate our, our own selves to those things that we had done in the past. Some carry around a sense of brokenness, and again, that becomes their identity. Here's one that, unfortunately, I think is very real in our society, but loneliness becomes a part of our identity. You know, it's, it's funny, I, as you look around the people in your life, it's very rare to get alone time where there's nobody around you. But do you know that there are so many people in our society today that walk around surrounded by all kinds of people but feeling like we are all alone? Like nobody's there for us? And what happens is people choose to stay in that condition. But I want you to know today that Jesus Christ came specifically so you would not have to stay in that darkness. He has come to offer you freedom and victory so that you no longer have to be identified by that. He has invited you into a fellowship, into the family of God, so that you no longer have to be alone. You have the Holy Spirit that will go with you no matter where you go. I've shared often, especially at funerals, I love in Psalm chapter 23, verse 4, where it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
The key word in that verse is not death, but rather it is shadow. Because in order for a shadow to be present, light must be present. Which means even when you walk through that dark valley, the light of the world, Jesus Christ has promised he will be there with you. We never have to be alone. Because the Spirit of God dwells in our hearts. But unfortunately, there are many that will choose darkness. But they don't have to. In fact, there is a much better way. According to this passage, we are told that although many will love darkness and not be willing to come into the light, there will also be those who will choose to live by the truth. Those who live by the truth will experience freedom like they have never experienced before. And it's interesting as I use that word, live by the truth, he doesn't just talk about loving truth, but living by the truth, because in order for us to truly love the truth, which Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, we also must live by the truth. God desires that we be transformed individuals. God did not come to set us free from sin only to be bound by other things. God came so that we could be transformed, so that we could live by the truth, so that we would no longer be identified by our sin, but that we might be set free and walk in victory, not after eternity comes, not after that day of judgment, although that is a part of it, but even today, we can walk in his freedom. We can live by the truth. I want to encourage you today, first of all, to understand how bold God's love is for you. Jesus Christ loved you so much that he would lay down his life so that you could be forgiven. Much like that image of a father who allowed his son to die so that everyone on the train could live, God has done that for you. My question is, because as you saw the different images of people on the screen, those who were on that train, there were individuals who were angry, individuals who were hurting, individuals who were living that addicted, addictive lifestyle. We only saw one individual who was actually changed by that encounter. Actually, what happened, it showed her drop her materials so that she would no longer do that. And later you see her with a child. Which group will you be in? The group that has been changed by God's bold love? Or will you be among those who simply either do not know what Christ has done for you? Or choose to ignore what Christ has done for you. This is not intended to be some emotional message where it brings tears or anything like that. It is simply to point out that God's love is so great. His wrath, it's great too. But I want you to understand how much God loves you today. God loves you and all of the sin that you brought He loves you regardless of that. What will you do because of that love? If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, we cannot say thank you enough for the love that you have shown to us. For while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, thank you for the great love that has been extended. And I pray right now that you would help us 
to realize what that love cost you. I pray that you would help us today to do more than just take this in and think about the love, but I pray that you would allow your love and your sacrifice to transform who we are. You tell us to confess our sins, that you'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of it, that you'll give us a new life, that you will set us free. And I believe that today. And Lord, I thank you for that because that means I don't have to worry about that coming day of judgment because I know that you have redeemed me and today I have a hope and a promise. And Lord, I look forward to that day, the time when I can enter into your presence continually and simply enjoy who you are. Lord, I pray today that every one of us would have that kind of peace in knowing what it is to be redeemed, to have our sins forgiven. There are those who have come this morning and they carry with them guilt and shame for choices that have been made. And they just want to start over and they don't know how. Others carry baggage of brokenness and loneliness, things that they have become a part of our identity. And they so much want to be able to step out of the darkness and into the light. And they simply don't know how, Lord, I pray that right now at this very moment, Lord, that you would forgive them of whatever sin has been present. I pray that you would transform them so that they can move from darkness and into your light. Give them a hunger and a thirst for you. Lord, I pray that you would fill us today with your spirit so that as we walk out of this place, we would no longer be identified by the past, but by the present and the future. Lord, I pray that your spirit would truly wash us today by the blood of Jesus' Son. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk every day as those who have been redeemed. And we will give you praise, honor, and glory for what you do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're going to be teaching for the next uh, three more weeks specifically on the boldness of God. And today, obviously, was God's bold love that he extended to us. I want to con- uh, encourage you today to boldly seek after Christ as we go through this series, to know that as we boldly seek him, he will bless us and use us in ways we never could have imagined. Every one of you is God's tool, and in his hands, you'd be amazed the things that he can do in you. As we close this morning, go with the blessing of God and go as his tool. We do have a brief business meeting that will follow. It'll take place in about 15 minutes. So hang out, enjoy yourselves for the next 15 minutes, and then we have a quick business meeting. Thank you for being with us this morning.